Well, good morning. For those of you that I haven't had a a chance to meet, the privilege to meet, my name is John Reddy, and I I serve as one of the pastors here at Redemption Hill Church. Um, I'm privileged to serve here. This morning, we are going to finish our series of teachings on the Sermon of the Mount. It officially comes to to the end. We've been looking at it consistently since last October, as we picked our way carefully through Matthew chapter 5 and chapter 6 and chapter 7. And and once again, I find myself in the position where I get to share the last word in a long sermon series. I was privileged to sort of finish up a study that we had done in the book of Acts last July. And this morning, we're going to get an opportunity to see how Jesus concludes his teaching on what we've been calling the new normal. What does it look like for a disciple of Jesus Christ to live in the kingdom of God here on earth? I've been given a great head start. Last week, Pastor Chastine, he he took an initial look at Matthew chapter 7, and and there we were encouraged by Jesus' teaching to not hesitate to persistently pursue deep relationship with him. We were told by Matthew that he said, ask. And it was implied, keep on asking, and it will be given to you. Seek, and keep on seeking, and you will find knock, and keep on knocking, and it will be opened. This kind of pursuit, we were reminded, it requires a kind of awareness, a kind of humility that we need to bring to that exchange. Uh, It connects our prayer life, we learned, to God's will. And it's the kind of perseverance that we saw that characterizes Somebody who truly desires relationship and intimacy with God. Before we concluded last week, however, we were confronted with a choice that Jesus said that we needed to make. Now, as I sat in the congregation, much as you are this morning, I thought to myself, I like choice. I mean, do you, how many people here like to choose? the freedom of choice. Um, One of my secret pleasures is to be given a Whitman sampler. Anybody here know what a Whitman sampler is? You know what that is, right? A yellow box of chocolate and and, uh, cellophane it's wrapped around to keep it uh, shelf fresh for at least nine or ten years. Um, And once you open it, there's a sort of a huge selection of all kinds of different kinds of chocolates. I love to go to the little grid and hunt and find and see what it is that I'm going to pick. Dark chocolate, coconut, almond nougats, and my personal go-to, so don't take it if you get the box before me, milk, chocolate, caramel. Oh, there you go, I've got competition. <laughs> and, and you know, the reason I like Whitman Sampler is because I really do like to choose. There's something about the freedom in considering alternatives. I think the reason that I and perhaps you really like that freedom is because it makes us feel more human. It allows us to not just go through life feeling like a robot, that we're just sort of somehow or other wound up, and then we're released to life. And that shouldn't surprise us, because that's how God, from the beginning, has designed us. Well, as Jesus begins to uh, conclude his teaching to his disciples and the crowds that were following him, he described a choice that his hearers would have uh, have to make. 
It's almost like he held out a Whitman sampler, but when the box was opened, there was only two choices available. The first choice was moving through this life and actually towards eternity. His hearers of his words would either have to choose to walk through life through a gate that was broad and a path that was easy, or, he suggested, the second choice, to walk through a gate that was narrow and a path that would be harder. Last week, Pastor Chastain encouraged us and said, you know, the wide gate and the easy path, it's what many people throughout history have regretfully chosen. And that pathway, we learned, leads to death and destruction in the final hours. But on the other hand, there is that narrow gate and the harder path. And it's the one that we were reminded is predicated on surrendering ourselves to the lordship of Jesus Christ. It's the one that ultimately leads to life eternal. It's the one that comes with the certainty that the few who choose to walk it will be continuously accompanied by him. So in just a few minutes, we're going to pick up where that teaching left off in Matthew chapter 7, and we're going to start in verse 15, and you can even pull out your Bibles and start to flip there. But as you do that, this morning... I want to shoot straight with you. This morning, I'm going to call each and every person that is hearing my voice today, and that includes me, as the words leave my lips and circle back to my ears, to choose. There can be no idle bystanders gathered here today. If you hear this word, then by default, you will be confronted with a choice to make. I just... I like it when people are honest with me. I don't particularly care for clickbait and false advertising and secret agendas. I respect you enough to ask you to choose and to act on whatever choice you make this morning. Today, it's not going to be normal. I told this to Pastor Tanner. It's not going to be typical. It's not just going to be another day of attending church. And I don't mean to come off as heavy this morning, but I want to keep us real. Because by the time we finish considering what Jesus has to say in these words, I think that we'll all agree that there is no middle ground. There is no fence to stand on top of. Thankfully, before I ask any of us to choose, we're going to look at Scripture. And there Jesus is, he's going to offer us a couple of contrasts that concern the different types of choices that are available to each of us. One of the things I'm grateful for is we're not abandoned to ignorance around what God desires. And so even as we approach that, let me lead us in prayer as we prepare our hearts to hear this word. If you would just repeat after me while I pray. Heavenly Father, speak to our hearts and change our lives. Well, let's pick up in uh, Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, and uh, follow along with me. This is what Jesus said. He said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. 
Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them, Jesus says, by their fruits. Beware. Danger. Look up. In this text, Jesus' final words in the Sermon on the Mount, he begins by sounding an alarm. And he gives us here the first of what are several warnings. He says that there's dangers in the journey of our spiritual walks, wherever you are at. And because there's extreme dangers, he says that we should exercise extreme caution. Here, the false prophets, they claim to be speaking for God, but the truth is they lead those that are in God's flock to abandon that narrow road and substitute it for the broad one. They lead others, it appears, to destruction. See, they appear as one of God's flock. They present themselves, he says, as sheep, citizens of a new covenant community, but they're really ravenous wolves. It's an image of viciousness that is often found in the scriptures, especially for leaders who lead genuine believers astray. It appears that they hide their true intentions. And more importantly, they hide the true effect that they cause, the ripping apart of the sheep. And because of this, Jesus calls his true disciples to exercise constant vigilance of that ongoing danger. It would be wise for us, hearing these words, to not be fooled by external appearance. Rather, we should develop a sensitivity towards the inward motivations of those we look to as teachers. This is a warning that the New Testament records many times. In fact, later in the gospel, Jesus warns his disciples again. He says in Matthew 24, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and they'll perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. The apostle Paul, teaching his pastoral protege, Timothy, warned that the rise of false prophets will be in part at least because there's a desire within the flock that's bent towards listening towards men rather than God. This is how Paul said, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers. Why? To suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and they'll wander off into myths. Finally, the apostle Peter says that the vigilance that um, we're referring to today and that Jesus encourages, it should be constant because the threat of these ravenous wolves that we're talking about, that's constant, and it's also subtle. In uh, 2 Peter chapter 2, he says, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be blasphemed. And so this morning, as we even just wrap our minds around that, my first encouragement is that we should, as followers of Christ, choose to follow Jesus with careful discernment. So that sort of begs the question, how will we discern? 
Apostle John equips us with a principle that I think can help us as Christians to identify the presence of ravenous wolves. He writes that we should consider their teaching about Jesus, hold it up to what Scripture has to say, and what we know to be fundamentally true about who he is. Those issues that are crucial to our faith. And this is how he puts it in his first letter to John to Christians. He says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this, you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. In other words, John here is saying that doctrine, or or the basic, most fundamental truths of what we believe, it matters. And, and, And where is our doctrine developed? What sort of serves as our authority for understanding it? It's not, John says, in the creative minds of people, but it's in the revealed word of God itself. For the followers of Jesus, like you and I, Scripture should be our guiding authority. Again, the Apostle Paul, uh, speaking to his protege Timothy, puts it like this in 2 Timothy. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. Know from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with what? The sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. One of my great pleasures is every Wednesday night, I get a chance to lead a community group in my home. And we have a little drop-in supper at 6, and then we get together for discussion at 7, and we go back and look at what has been taught on Sunday morning from our teaching elder. One of the things that I've learned is in my group, she'll be embarrassed for me to say this, but I've got somebody who has been a student and faithful to the word for years. Her name is Edmute Benoit. And I know that as a pastor... As we're sitting there and I'm leading discussion, if I move off of a core key truth as the scripture reveals it, I'll see a shifting in the seat. You know what I'm talking about, right? And I'll go, okay, Edmute, and what did I say? And she'll remind me, perhaps I cited the wrong uh, verse. Maybe in one of my great failures in life as a pastor is I have a terrible memory. So um, she'll so, but I'm thankful for that. I, at first, it was awkward for our group because they thought, oh, I can't believe she's correcting a pastor, right? But the truth is, she's to be commended because she wasn't correcting me with her opinion. She was correcting me with the word to say, Pastor, this is really where it's found. And for that, I appreciate that. In our text this morning, Jesus gives us a second test for discerning the presence of false prophets. He uses a pretty common farming metaphor. He tells us that we're to look at their fruit as evidence on the outside in order to determine the true nature of their internal life. And this is, I think, for most of us, a familiar principle, even for urbanites like us living in Greater Medford, um, where maybe we have a window box where we 
grow something. Here in this scripture, fruit is more than just the deeds of those teachers, but they're everything that they are, including what they say and how they act. And so like Edmute and like all of us, we can and we should assess a teacher and hold them accountable to the kingdom values that Paul encourages in places like Galatians 5, um, 22 and 23. He says there that the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. He says against those things there are no law and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. We should look for that kind of fruit to be flowing through and out our teachers and leaders. It's the responsibility of every follower of Jesus to pay attention, certainly to the teaching that a leader utters with his mouth, but also to the teaching that he demonstrates with his life. And as we pay attention, we're to recognize and we're to discern the principles that are taught and the application of those principles in that teacher's life But to recognize them, it means that we have to know the truth ourselves. It means that we have to have the ability to compare what the revealed word of God has to say with what it is that we're seeing and hearing. We must become students of the word ourselves. We have to become familiar with what transformation and the demonstration of the word active in our lives actually looks like. And so this morning, for all of us gathered here, my prayer is that we will choose to follow Jesus, but to follow him with discernment that understands the authority of the revealed word, and it's careful to observe the fruit of anyone who claims to teach it. But the saints must at all times be watchful to make sure that their leaders fulfill their calling. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew, and and let's pick up at verse 21, chapter 7. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and cast out demons in your name, and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You see, here Jesus goes on to broaden his warning about leaders, and he now considers anyone who claims to be his servant. While the many shower him with this sort of double title of respect, Lord, Lord, which is just another way of saying revered teacher. The message here from Jesus is that a mere confession is useless unless it's accompanied by action. You see, it's possible to make a profession of faith, but make it without a changed life. Jesus here declares that such an affirmation remains insufficient. See, a confession of faith spoken should be accompanied by an inner transformation of spirit that results in obedience to the will of his Father. In fact, Jesus teaches that it's a condition for entering the kingdom. He goes on to say, on that day. What day is he talking about? He's talking about the day of final judgment. 
It's a day we don't like to talk about and hear about. It's a day when all men and women stand before God in sort of a, a heavenly court. And we stand as defendants before the ultimate judge. Some, Jesus says, will appeal to the point of manifesting all kinds of noble, even supernatural external works. And he says they'll prove meaningless if there's been no transformation of the Spirit resulting in the basic obedience to who God's the Father is and the will that he has. See, as impressive as foretelling and exorcism and miracles may be, what impresses God is genuine relationship with him. A claim to be a legitimate follower of Jesus is not enough if lives do not reflect that claim because there has been no time actually spent surrendered to his presence. And so therefore, my second encouragement to us this morning is that we should choose to follow Jesus with genuine relationship. Now there's a, there's a caution that I offer for those of us here at Redemption Hill Church. There are some of us who like to hang around churches. And this warning from Jesus is, I think, particularly germane. For the lonely, friendship in community can be a draw. For the gifted, places to release our skills and to find excellence in service, that can be satisfying. For those of you that are intellectually curious, study and debate and discussion, they can all be stimulating. And all of those pursuits are noble. And yet, they are ultimately bankrupt if they are detached from what actually brings us together. And that is union in Christ, service for Christ, and relationship with Christ. As a follower of Jesus, being in God's presence will give us the opportunity to be continuously filled with his spirit. And as we're with him, it will allow us to learn his voice, to understand his commands, to actually receive the transformation and the power to actually live the resurrected life that we've been hearing described. On the other hand, just as there can be false prophets, there can be false confessions. And, and, and a false confession is like I've shared. It's, it's based on works, but it's apart from and distinct from intimacy with God. And the word here teaches that will ultimately be met by a harsh but an accurate pronouncement from the judge. I never knew you. It will be solemn, it will be sober. It will be public, not private, for all to see. It will be irreversible at the final judgment. Jesus will declare that a false confession is one 
where someone is committed to the power Jesus represented and to the status that they thought that they had, but they never allowed the will of God to control their actions. The false disciple that Jesus portrays here, if that false disciple had really known God, his sheer presence in their lives would have moved them to believing loyalty as they sought to please the one that they had experienced personally. Instead, a false confession based on anything other than a personal surrender and an ongoing intimacy with God will be met with total rejection on that day of judgment. It will be complete. It will be tragic. And it will be for eternity. So my prayer for us this morning is that each one of us, regardless of where we are in our spiritual journey, will choose to follow Jesus with genuine relationship. The kind of relationship with God that is personal, that is grounded in the seeking of God's presence. Let's start and look at verse 24. Jesus goes on to teach us and he says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rains fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell. And great was the fall of it. Jesus moves to this final illustration as he winds down his teaching on the Sermon of a Mount with a statement that I think summarizes the overall theme of the sermon from beginning in Matthew 5 all the way to Matthew 7. He says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. See, it's inadequate, Jesus is saying, to speak without doing. It's inadequate to hear without doing. For what we do demonstrates who we are. A true and a wise follower of Jesus puts his teaching into practice with a lifestyle that's firmly centered on doing the will of the Father. Doing in obedience is a verb here. It's that is ongoing. It's a, it's a lifelong pursuit, and it's one that we've learned already. It has an eternal destiny attached. Now, in this scripture, Jesus uses a word picture of house building that I think is familiar to to many of us. He contrasts a hearer and a doer. Those who just hear are like fools building on sand, a common Old Testament characterization. But those who actively do are wise for their building on that rock. In this parable, he offers another picture of the natural consequences of just hearing versus active doing. See, he shows us the wide gate. He shows us the easy path. He shows us the false prophet. He shows us the false confession. Jesus makes it plain that the outcomes of all of those choices are catastrophe, hopelessness, death, and destruction. 
But then he goes on to show us the narrow gate, the harder path, the true authority, the personal confession. And Jesus makes it plain that the outcome of each one of those choices is hope and life. Now, for those of us that are followers of Christ, I do want to caution us. It's not to say that the wise follower of Jesus will be immune from trials and tribulations in this life here on earth. Rain will descend. Floods will rise. Winds will blow. But we will experience the natural consequences of this fallen world with the assurance that as they come, what has been built will remain standing because the foundation is strong. I think it begs the question, what's the foundation? Let's take a careful look. See, a lot of times this parable that Jesus is teaching is interpreted as an allegory. An allegory is just a literary device where each individual part kind of represents something. In fact, I just used um, rain and floods and winds to help you to think about trials and tribulations. Sometimes, I think we make the mistake in handling this by allegorizing the foundation or the rock, and we sort of point and say, well, that's Jesus. And in some ways, that image can be helpful. It can be useful to us. But let's look at verse 24 a little bit more carefully, and let's make sure that we're accurate with this scripture. What's the key to the foundation? Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The strength of the foundation is action in response to the hearing of the word. Now this strength, there can be no doubt that it flows from Jesus. After all, John said in 1.1 that Jesus was the word. Uh, He's the one who encourages us, who commands us, who makes an appeal to us. Through him, we learn what the Father's will is. But Jesus himself says that the foundation will remain solid for those who not only hear, but they do. His teachings are not just heard, they're heeded. The message is that the house built wisely and the life built on obedience will stand now and, what should encourage all of us, at the final judgment. That should bring comfort to our hearts. So therefore, my third encouragement is that we should choose to follow Jesus with a type of responsive action. My prayer this morning is that for each one of us that will choose to follow Jesus with that kind of action, but it's the kind that not only hears the word of the Lord, but decides to take steps in obedience to the spirit of that which has been heard. Let's look at verse 28. Matthew tells us, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Astonishment. It feels like in our life there's less and less that astonishes us. Technology just seems to make the world seem smaller sometimes. Amazement. Matthew tells us in the original Greek that the people that were gathered to hear Jesus, they were left with this 
ongoing feeling of wonder, even as they went home. In other words, the effect upon them was so profound, listen, it echoed outside the moments of their listening. It lingered. It had an impact on them. And what stood out? What, what sort of powered that impact? Well, Matthew tells us it was the authority that was evident in his teaching. See, the people listening to him, they were used to hearing from scribes. Scribes were men who claimed no authority of their own. Their duty was to be faithful to the traditions that they had received. They searched commentaries. They delved into opinions. They regurgitated insights and quotes from times past. But this Jesus, Matthew tells us, was different. Unlike the Old Testament prophets who would declare, thus says the Lord, this Jesus prefaced his teachings, even in the Sermon of the Mount, with, I say to you. He was so much more than just a commentator. He commanded, he prohibited, he repealed, he promised, and as John Stott tells us, on his own bare word. How could he do this? He was divine. And his words and the Father's were one. And so even though his hearers, they couldn't organize their minds around all the theological truth that that might imply, much like maybe you're sitting there and and you're having a hard time wrapping your mind around it, they could feel its effect. And it left them, Matthew says, amazed. As he taught, he was the Christ. He was the Lord. He was the Savior. He was the judge. He was the Son of God. He was here to usher in the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. And so, 2,000 years later, as we hear these words, in our response to his authoritative teaching, an author I like a lot raises some natural questions that I think all of us here need to answer. Do you resemble a citizen of heaven or a citizen of earth? There are two kinds of gates. Which one will you choose? There's two kinds of teachers. Which ones will you listen to? There are two kinds of servants. Which one will you be? There are two kinds of foundations. On which will you build? If ever a sermon required a response, surely it is this one. Jesus' listeners did not know how his earthly ministry would end. But we do. If they listened and were amazed, how much more amazed ought we be as those who live in the light of the finished work of Christ? So this morning I was up front when I told you that I would ask you to make a choice. A choice that is conscious, deliberate, and I believe wise. In your mind's eye, I want you to consider that Whitman sampler that I referenced being held out. I want you to see the two choices that are available. And here's my question. Will you choose Jesus or not? For several months now, we've been exploring 
the Sermon on the Mount, and, and people across history and across the world, they've admired the masterfulness of its teaching. But many, I regret, have missed this one crucial point. The type of kingdom living described throughout the Sermon on the Mount can only be accomplished by acknowledging the king. Let me say that again. The type of kingdom living that we see in the Sermon on the Mount, which many of you pine to move towards, can only be accomplished by acknowledging the King. Without the favor of God the Father, the worship of Jesus' His Son, and the power of His Spirit, the new normal that we've been exploring now for months is impossible to sustain. We simply can't do it apart from Him. And when we try, it's meaningless in its application. So I'm going to ask some of you to do something that may feel a little awkward at first. If you've reached the point in your faith journey where you wish to enter in to the narrow gate, where you choose to follow Jesus as Christ and Lord and Savior and Judge and Son of God, then I'm going to ask you, I'm going to invite you to come down when we sing and tell someone. When we begin to sing our next psalm of worship, I've asked Pastor Tanner to come and to to just stand here right at the center. And when he does, I'm going to challenge you to go up to him, look him in the eye, and boldly proclaim, I choose to follow Jesus. If this is your morning of choice, that's awesome. Come on down. If you've been sitting here for a few months, and, and, and you've maybe may arrived at some choices and decisions, but you've never really announced that decision publicly, then I invite you to take advantage of this opportunity. Come on down as well. You see, a careful reading of the Gospels shows that whenever Jesus called people to, to repentance and a life of faith, a public acknowledgement of that always seemed to follow a profession of faith. There's something powerful about moving a private choice into an expressed option and choice. And so my prayer for us, even as I invite uh, Pastor Tanner to come down and, and uh, some of our prayer counselors, my prayer is for, the, for some of you that are gathered here this morning that this would be a day that you remember for many years to come. I'm going to invite everyone to rise. I'm going to invite everyone to join us in singing our song of worship. And I invite anyone, don't let feelings of awkward get in the way of a choice to choose Jesus this morning. I invite anyone who's ready to choose narrow path of Jesus to come down, tell Pastor Turley, so we can rejoice and we can pray with you.